crowd joined in the attack against them. So it's, it's these guys took Paul to these legal authorities, and now the crowd, the public, is in on the, uh, on the persecution as well. And the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. So um, a stock... Raise your hand if you've ever seen those pictures of those guys locked in those wooden boxes with their hands in their, in their head like this. So, an interest, so think of that, but then think of an extra stock out in front of them holding their feet like this, and they're sitting on the ground like this. And so uh, it's putting constant tension. I don't know. If, if one of you guys wants to try it, you can. But they were essentially sitting in the most secure part of the prison, so with their hands and feet in the stocks like this. Hold forward, and so you can imagine the tension that's on their hamstrings. These guys were in constant pain as they were being guarded by this jailer, and this jailer put them in this pain simply because the magistrates ordered the jailer to guard them very carefully. Um, they did not want these men to escape prison. And so uh, they're in a lot of pain. These guys are uh, experiencing a lot of difficulty, and something that we see throughout this story is in the midst of these incredible circumstances, in the midst of this, this deep pain. By the way, we're in session six, if you didn't know we were in session six in your book, if you wanted to track what this there. Um, these guys are in deep amounts of pain, and yet their, their perspective on what's going on is very different. It's odd. It's, it's weird. Their point of view in this situation changed the way that they responded to what was going on. So um, one day, standing in a yard, there was this little girl, and she was playing with her parents. And, uh, you know, much like every neighborhood, speed limit's 25, right? And then all of a sudden, this car, like, goes zooming by super quick, probably going, like, 40, 45 miles per hour through this 25-mile-per-hour speed zone. And this little girl stops and looks at her parents like, what in the world is going on this car? Why is that car driving so fast? Well, meanwhile, in the car, there's a little boy. You know, he's, he's playing with action figures in the back of the car. Um, and as they zoom by the house, he, like, t- looks out the window and takes a glance, sees a cute little girl um, playing with her parents, and goes, Mom? How in the world is that little girl in her house moving at the same speed? You see, to the, to the girl who was standing on the outside of the car, what she saw was a very still world and a car moving very quickly. But to the little boy sitting inside the car, everything inside seemed to be very still, and yet the world was flying by super fast. You see, the, the, your perception, your perspective matters. It could change the way that you see or respond to a situation. So I want you to think about your own life for a moment. Think about how you see uh, your circumstances. Think about how you see uh, the people in your life. Think about how you see your purpose. What's your purpose? Why do you exist? Why are you here? Why are you in Eureka? Why has God placed you here? What's the deal? Why has God placed the people in your life in your life? Why has God uh, designed you right now at this point in your life to be a high school student at Eureka High School? Why has he put you in the circumstances that you're in? Why has he given you the home life that you're in? Why, do you, why are you there? Why are you in the family that you're in? What's the point? Think about how you see all of those things. You see, many of us, we struggle when it comes to our circumstances, right? We respond to the things in our life based on how they make us feel. And the interesting thing is that when, when things don't go the way that we expect, right? Like we, we you know, fail a test by surprise or we don't make a sports team, 
or we lose a friendship, um, we crumble. We completely crumble when things don't go the way that we expect. We lose our hope and we begin to be filled with worry about what may or may not happen next, right? We begin to be, be like anxious and freaking out. Um, you know, many of us even do this over tests. We don't know what's going to happen on the test. Even we might have studied and studied and studied and studied, but we just don't know what's going to happen. And so in anticipating what could happen or what couldn't happen, we freak out. Um, and we do this all the time. We do this in our interactions with our friends or interactions with family. We do it at school. Shoot, you may even do it when you come here. But um, we're prone to be filled with worry because we don't know what's going to happen. And we respond to our circumstances based on how they make us feel. But we don't just do this with our circumstances, right? We do it with people, right? Typically, for many of us, we see people in one of three categories. We see people as friends. We see them as strangers. Or we see them as enemies. We see them as friends, strangers, or enemies. And anybody who's not our friend, whether they're a stranger or an enemy, we treat them as less than. We treat them as insignificant, as if they don't, they're, they're not valuable to us or they, they don't matter. Um, and we, we kind of dismiss them and push them aside. What about our purpose? Now, this is very interesting because many of us in the room, uh, we might see our purpose a little bit differently, right? Like, we might see our presence in Eureka to, you know, for this reason or that reason, or we might see our presence in our family for this reason or that reason. Or um, When it comes to our, our purpose, there's a lot more diversity in how we see and view our purpose than there is in how we see our circumstances or people. But one of the interesting things that all of us usually have in common when it comes to thinking about our purpose in life is this. Usually our purpose in life has a lot to do with us. It has a lot to do with us. See, when I think about my purpose in life, it has a lot to do with me. It's, it's instead of being focused on maybe others or, or what I can give, maybe it's focused on what I can get, what I can receive. It's focused about what I can gain through this life or do in this life. See, purpose is an interesting thing to wrestle with because what happens when we begin to wrestle with purpose is we start to ask ourselves very big questions that we might not be used to asking all the time, right? Asking ourselves things like, why are we here? What's the point? Maybe even asking ourselves questions like, man, there's a lot of junk going on in the world. Does God really exist? And those are very safe questions to ask here. And many of us ask those questions all the time, but we're afraid to verbalize them because we're, we're, we're scared of what this person's going to think or this person's going to think. But nine times out of ten, the person next to us is thinking the very same question we are. We wrestle with our purpose. We're so focused on ourselves and what we can get out of this life that we lose sight of what matters. We lose sight of what matters. And, and, and I'm going to argue that what matters is faith in Christ. That's, I'm going to play my hand early. That's, that's, that's what I'm going to argue tonight. Is that what matters is our faith in Jesus. You see, we're so busy on this world and what's going on in it and what we can get out of it and what we can see and what we can gain, that we actually lose sight of the things that matter, which are typically unseen. Things of the kingdom of heaven, things of the kingdom of God, things that, things are, that are genuinely valuable. And I truly believe that a saving faith in Jesus radically changes our perspective on what matters. See, what matters to us begins to change because of the faith that we have in Christ. You see, we like to th think that we're a Christian if we begin to think this way. Or I can become a Christian if I begin to think this way. But the reality is, is it's the supernatural power of God that causes us to think like Jesus. And so we cannot force ourselves into thinking in the way that Christ thinks. 
or being the way that Christ is or trying to follow Jesus. We actually can't force ourselves to do that. You see, the, the, the way to begin to follow Jesus is not trying as hard as you can. It's actually giving up and admitting that you can't and asking the Spirit of the Lord to help you and to guide you and to lead you in a life of devotion to Christ. So, our circumstances. We see Paul and Silas, these two guys, are in difficult circumstances here. Um, I, I don't think anybody here has been beaten with rods because they're a Christian. This is extremely painful. Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians when he talks about his suffering, he says that he bears on his body, body the marks of Jesus. And I'm sure he's thinking about moments like this where he was beaten on behalf of his faith. You see, the way that these guys were bound, kind of like what we talked about earlier, they're in a constant state of pain. And the reason why these people were so upset was uh, selfish, right? Paul and Silas, in casting this, this, this evil spirit out of this woman, took away an opportunity for gain in the lives of these, these men who own this woman. And so these men lashed out against Paul and Silas. And what they did was very interesting. You see, they didn't complain that they cast out the spirit. They complained about their message. And what they said about their message was that it authorized their message, the message of the gospel, authorized something that was illegal in this Roman colony. And the reason why is because the people of Rome were to give their entire allegiance to Caesar, King Caesar. They were actually called to worship Caesar, almost like he was a god. And so to say that there is actually a king named Jesus who deserves all of our affection brushed up against their laws, and it upset the people. But one of the very fascinating things that we see about these guys is that right after this, if you look at the next verse, verse 25, somebody read verse 25 out loud if you can. It's not up there. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were singing hymns to God and praising God. These guys were bound up, literally sitting like this. And their response wasn't complaining. It wasn't looking at their situation and freaking out. It was rest and confidence in God. It was rest and confidence in God. Notice that it doesn't say that they were, they were pleading to be rescued. They were just praising God. They were praising God. And their faith in Christ gave them rest in the midst of their pain. They had rest knowing that God was at work in the midst of their suffering. They were confident that even though they were suffering, that God was using it somehow. That God was doing something in the midst of suffering. James, um, in the book of James, James chapter 1, James puts it this way. Consider it a great joy when you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Um, I love exercise. Uh, I've kind of stunk it up ever since like last July. I, I don't know what happened. My schedule just kind of fell apart and I haven't been able to exercise a lot. But one of the interesting things about uh, lifting weights that I actually love is that in order for yourself to get bigger and get stronger, you actually have to inflict physical pain on your body to do so. And so it's this interesting picture of suffering because in order for me to get stronger, I actually have to put micro tears in my muscles in order for them to get, get bigger and to get stronger. And so I have to go to the gym and I have to lift weights and I have to experience, I actually just got back in the gym, so I'm all sore, right, from working out and experiencing pain and some level of suffering so that I can grow. And so James tells us that our suffering in this life is to be considered a joy and a pleasure because it tests our faith. 
It strengthens our faith. It, it produces endurance so that when things get hard, we do not give up, but we press through for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christ because we, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have confidence in the gospel so much that we are willing to push through our difficult circumstances and our suffering. But it's, 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 it's not just that. You see, Paul, who's in this situation, later writes this in 2 Corinthians. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, uh, I will most gladly boast all the more in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul sees his suffering as something that is exposing his weaknesses so that God can build him up, so that God's strength can be revealed in the midst of his inability, in the midst of his weakness. You see, so it's not just faith giving rest in the midst of suffering, it's faith that gives hope in the midst of suffering. We have great hope in the challenges of our circumstances. Our uncertainty in life typically tempts us to, again, freak out when we're uncertain about our circumstances, right? Like, will my parents ever get along? Will that person stop being my friend because of my faith in Christ? When, when things get out of control, we freak out. We freak out. When we recognize that the almighty hand of God is in complete control through our confidence in Jesus, we have great hope. God's great control over the universe comforts us and reminds us that he is trustworthy no matter the circumstances. I've lost many friends because of my faith. There are a lot of people who I used to hang out with, who I used to party with, who I used to, that don't talk to me anymore because of my faith. Many, many, many people don't want to talk to me anymore. When I was a new Christian, this used to freak me out. Uh, it bothered me. It irritated me. It made me think that I was becoming a loser um, and that nobody was going to like me anymore and I wasn't going to have friends. And what I was doing was I was placing my value in what others thought of me not recognizing that my value and my worth isn't defined by what's going on in my life or the people I hang around, but that my worth is only found in the status that I have, not online, but the status that I have before my creator. That is where all of my identity, all of my worth is found. That when I determine whether my life is worth something, I see it up against God, not up against people or my situation. The reason why you matter is because God says you matter. The reason why you feel like you matter is because God created you with a longing for him, a longing to remind you and to tell you that you matter to him, that you are valuable because you are created in the image of God. It is who God says that you are that motivates us to love. It is God's, what God says you are that motivates you to pursue other people, whether they're a friend, a stranger, or an enemy. So, Faith in Christ doesn't just change the way I see circumstances, right? It changes the way we see people. And I'm not, I'm not going to read all of this tonight because we don't have time. But what happens is, is um, there's a huge earthquake and all the cells of the prison are opened wide open. And the, 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 the foundations of the jail are shaken and the jailer's asleep. And so obviously like earthquake happens, it's going to wake dude up, right? So uh, the jailer wakes up and um, he like walks out and he sees all the cells open. And the only honorable thing that he can think of is to commit suicide. And so it says in the text that the jailer took out his sword about to stab himself. 
and he hears a shout coming from the interior walls of the prison. It's the voice of Paul. And he says, stop, don't harm yourself. We are all here. And so something very interesting happened. I love this. The walls of the foundation of the jail are shaken. All of the prisoners are set free. The jail is, everybody's loose. And all the prisoners go to Paul. All the criminals go to the one who was singing hymns. You see, it says that all the prisoners heard him singing and praising God with Silas before this. And then when this happens, they all go to him because they know something's going on. And so the jailer goes to him. And the first thing out of the jailer's mouth, it's the last sentence here. It says, he escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, something very interesting about uh, truth is truth does something very, very interesting. Truth, biblical truth, the Bible, does this. It reveals our need to be saved. It reveals something about us that, that, that creates in us, us this, this, this knowing that I need to be rescued, that there, there is something fundamentally wrong with me and I need, I need rescue, I need to be restored, I need God to do something, save me. This guy responds in that way, he says, what, what must I do to be saved? And, and I love this. You see, the gospel changes the way that Paul interacts with these people. You see, criminals who typically would have been dismissed by Paul, who, by the way, before he became a Christian, murdered Christians. Paul murdered Christians, and here he is now ministering to a jailer who is persecuting him. And Paul, rather than seeing people as, as a friend or a stranger or an enemy, you see, Paul, Paul now sees people in two different categories. He sees them either as a child of God, somebody who knows the Lord, or, or an enemy of God, somebody who does not know Christ. And in each of these categories, Paul is compelled to move toward them, not away from them, but toward them. You see, I mean, we, 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 if you're a Christian, it's very easy for you to move toward other people who are Christians, right? You share this eternal bond and this commonality over fellowship um, with Jesus. You both know Jesus. You're growing in Christ. You want to you strengthen each other in the faith. And so you read your Bibles together. You wrestle truth together. You talk about how, how the truth is impacting your everyday way of life together. Or at least I hope you do because that's what believers do when they gather together. Um, but then here's where it gets interesting. You see believers in Christ who have genuinely been transformed by the gospel are motivated to go to people who haven't been. And they're compelled to share the incredible love that is offered to us in Christ, to people who do not know God. We see this in Paul moving toward the jailer. This is a guy who put them in a painful position and locked them down for hours, and yet they're still willing to share the good news of Jesus with him. They're not willing to dismiss this guy because of how bad he was. They didn't say, oh, this jailer's too far gone because he wanted to inflict pain on us because of Jesus. No, no, no. Their, their sight of this man and his, his uh, rebellion against God actually moved them near to him. So much so that they saved his life. They said, don't kill yourself. Come, come here. Let us tell you how to be saved. And so um, it says that they, they, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him talked about the gospel they talked about jesus they talked about who christ was they talked about that christ was the only one that could save them that that longing that this man had to be changed could only be found in christ that that longing could only be fulfilled met in christ 
And so you guys, me, we move near to both our friends in Christ and, and those who do not know the Lord. Because here's the deal. Before you and I knew Jesus, we too were enemies of God. Ephesians 2 says that, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead. Dead. Completely incapable of anything good. And yet God saved us. Why? Because he wanted to. He wanted to. And through that love, his ultimate glory would be shown to us. He would reveal the depth of his, his mercy to us. And his, his kindness and his grace would be shown to us through that. Look, if you're a Christian in here, God has blessed you with a story to tell. You have a story to tell. He's blessed you with something to take into the people uh, that you know and, to, and, to, and to, to press your story up against their life and say, you can experience this goodness as well. You can experience this grace as well. You can experience this mercy as well. Let me show you that following Jesus is something you can do, that God can do a work in your life, that God can change you just like he's changed me. And that we can begin to see um, evidence of God at work in your life. And I can, I can show you this and this and this. And, 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 and when you see a person transformed because you are faithful to lean in and to obey God and, and sharing your story. You and I have been called by the creator of the universe. We've been called by him and given Christ himself to rely on. We are, we, we are given the son of God to rely on, to trust in to help us. We can stake our lives on Jesus and our confidence in him gives us an entirely new perspective on everything. Not just circumstances, not just people, everything. How we spend our time, our schedules, all of that. You see, seeing our circumstances and people in our lives differently are one thing, but seeing our entire purpose in life shifted away from ourselves is different. You see, again, Christ takes our perspective on our purpose and he shifts the focus onto us and projects it on to himself. I remember uh, when I was in high school, um, I really, really, really wanted a cute girlfriend. Like, I wanted a cute girlfriend. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in a little bit to my, 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 my life here and what went on in my heart. So I wanted a cute girlfriend, but here's why I wanted a cute girlfriend. I want you to listen very closely. I wanted uh, to be seen with this girl under my arm or like, you know, holding hands with her, walking through the halls of school. I wanted people to notice me with this girl. And I wanted people to be jealous. I wanted a cute girl so that people would be jealous of me. So that they would think more of me. So that they would want what I had and think that I was better because I had what they didn't have. You see, loving another person should be all about sacrificial service and grace and compassion and dedication to them. You see, I wanted to take something designed by God, pursuing another spouse. And here's the deal. Um, this is a rabbit trail. We can't talk about this tonight. The purpose of dating is marriage. I'm just going to leave it at that. If you want to argue with me about that later, we, let's go. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, uh, the purpose of dating is marriage. And so I took this thing designed by God, pursuing another spouse, pursuing a spouse, and I twisted it for my own purposes. I twisted it to be this thing that, that I could benefit from. I twisted it in this thing that, that, that I would get gain 
from. I wanted a girl to essentially be waved around like she was my personal possession so that people would like me more. We love, we love to live for ourselves. We do. You and I love to be about you and I. It's wired into the very core of our nature because of sin's existence. And here's the deal. The gospel changes this in incredible ways. The gospel changes our desires that are shaped around I. And again, they they direct them towards Jesus. God takes us and reshapes us. He reshapes the, the, the way that our thoughts and our motives and our existence revolve no longer around us, but then revolve around Jesus. That's what the phrase of like putting Jesus first, this like, we kind of throw it around. That's what that means. It means orienting our entire lives around Christ and making everything in our lives be about him and no longer about me. Our desires change the way we see ourselves and our mission. It changes our perspective on what really matters. Look, if if I built a house, whose house would it be? Who would have possession of it if I built it with my bare hands? Whose house would it be? Huh? Be mine, right? Yeah, I know. It's church. It's it's hard. So if I built a house, it's mine. What about what about if I if I built a car, bought all the parts myself and put it together? I made a car. Whose car would it be? It'd be mine, right? What about if I if I painted something, a beautiful painting? Who would be the artist? That who whose painting would that be? Would it be mine? Absolutely, right? It'd be my painting. What if I wrote a song? If I wrote a song, would it be Amy's song? No, it'd be my song, right? It'd belong to me. You see, if you were to create something, it would belong to you, right? If you were to make a house, if you were to make a car, if you were to make a painting or write a, write a beautiful piece of music, that, that would belong to you. If you invented something, it would belong to you. If you created something, it would belong to you. Now think about this. Who created you? Who created you? So who do you belong to? We, yeah, we, we, we are not our own. And yet we treat the purpose of our lives like we belong to us, like we can dictate us, that we have the final say in how we live. And yet our creator, the one who made us, the one who owns us, says otherwise. But here's the interesting thing. My car cannot walk away from me and give its allegiance to another person, right? Like, my car can't dip out of my driveway, pull into Jordan's with a title, and say, hey, dude, I'm yours now, right? Like, my car can't do that. My house couldn't run down the street and belong to Eli. It's mine. And yet, we who are God's possession can run away from the one who created us and give ourselves to another. And that, at the very foundational level, is what sin has done. It has it, we belong to God and we're in unified relationship with God and in sin we ran away from that which, which we belong to and gave ourselves to another. It's like if a husband were to turn away from his wife who he belongs to and give his heart to another person. You are not your own. Scripture actually says that you were bought with a price. You see the 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 turning away from God and the running away from God to give ourselves to another, to, to allow ourselves to come under the possession 
of sin, we were purchased out of that slavery into God's family. God bought us back. It is as if if my car would ran down the street to Jordan's house and I would still go give Jordan money to get my car back. You see, we ran away from God and yet God purchased us back. We belong to him. And so your life is no longer your own if you're in Christ. This is why our lives are about Jesus. That's why. Because they don't belong to us anymore. That's the whole point of surrendering your life, of, of giving up your life to Christ, of, of, of declaring before God that your will does not belong to you anymore. It belongs to him. That he gets in the driver's seat and you get in the passenger seat and you follow his lead. See, saving faith in Jesus radically changes our perspective on what matters. Saving faith in Christ is incredibly saving faith in Christ is incredibly powerful. As faith in Christ changes us, we begin to see something very interesting happen. The things that we thought were so important begin to become less and less and less important to us. They begin to matter less. Because our eyes are no longer on our existence here. Our eyes are on heaven. We live lives for the purpose of heaven. We live lives for the purpose of eternity. We live our minutes in perspective of eternity. Not today, not tomorrow, not not our future, but on eternity. I love the way that Jonathan Edwards put it. Um, He said this around the time, he's kind of your age, he's around 20 teenage, teenage years, and he said this, Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Now, this was a long time ago that he said this, so the English is a little funny, so read it a couple times. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Jonathan Edwards had eternity in perspective. And so he wanted to live his minutes in such a way that when he when he was old and gray and looked back on his life, he, want, he wanted to live his life in the way that that old man wished he could have lived. May we live our lives today in the same way that an old man would desire to live, looking back on his life, focused on what matters. On what matters. May God work in us a deep faith, giving us confident certainty that expresses itself in actions of love towards people we see and face. Confident assurance. Let's pray. God, we confess to you that in many ways we have wasted our lives focusing our minutes on things that do not matter, directing our attention toward things that are about us. And so God, we come to you tonight and we ask, God, take us, mold us, shape us, turn our eyes away from selfish gain and turn our eyes toward the beauties of eternity. Turn us away from getting the most we can in this life that we have to giving the most we can to you and dedicating our complete existence to you. God, help us to 
respond to our circumstances in such a way that we, that we see you at work in them and that they would be a joy to us, even in the midst of suffering, because we know that you are at work. God, help us to respond to people in a way that compels us to move near to them because we don't see people as strangers or enemies that are an inconvenience to us or uh, that don't matter, but we see them as souls who desperately need you and we want to play our part in showing them who you are and telling them about who you are. God, turn our eyes away from a purpose that is about us and toward one that is about you. God, that we would be focused and fixated on Jesus and it would compel and change the way that we live today, tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, we're going to go just a little bit over, just a little bit over, and we're going to spend the next seven minutes um, in small groups. And so what I want you guys, leaders, we're going we're gonna to get in small groups. We're going to go over because we can. We haven't done that in a while, so we're going to go over. Um, but I want, you guys to, I want you guys to maybe confess something to each other. How have you not lived for what matters? Or maybe how have you been challenged tonight to change your perspective or have your perspective changed by God toward what matters? So I just want you to take some time, get into groups, and, 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 and talk about that. What, how, how have your priorities not focused on the kingdom? And how do you want your priorities to focus on the kingdom? So take some time. We'll do like a, a two guys groups over here and then maybe a girls group over on the couches. How about that? Sound good? Cool. And then I will get on the mic and shut it down in about seven minutes.